Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. We're talking about $30 billion. That's how much it took to rescue the latest bank now in trouble. Some of the country's biggest banks contributed billions each to keep First Republic afloat, which tells you just how seriously they take all of this. But what about everyday Americans who are bearing the brunt of the pain of, say, interest rates that are going up? Is the little guy getting ignored in all of this? Plus, it's the video you cannot look away from. The U.S. military releasing this footage of a Russian fighter jet forcing down an American drone over the Black Sea. What is going on in the new battlegrounds in the skies? And are confrontations like this more likely now with unmanned objects? Also, banks failing, the market in turmoil, drones forced out of the sky, and now this, everyone, seaweed. A massive blob of seaweed thousands of miles long, if that's even possible, over 10 million tons of it floating around in the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic and also heading for Florida's beaches. And did I mention it smells like rotten eggs, which of course smells like sulfur? I'm just going to point that out. We'll tell you all about that in a moment. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, but I want to begin with the situation with the banks. And joining me here now, Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland. He's a member of the Banking Committee. Senator, thank you for joining us this evening. I won't ask you about the seaweed. Don't worry. But I will ask you about what's been <laughs> Thanks, going on with the mess that uh, the banks are finding themselves in. However, as you know, these markets, the markets are celebrating the idea of big banks rushing now to save First Republic. Um, Are we going to see more of this? Is it an indication that the ship is being righted, or is it more of a foreboding domino effect happening? What do you think? Well, Laura, it's great to be with you. I do think it's good news that you had some of the biggest banks uh, in the country investing $30 billion uh, to save First Republic. Uh, And I I do think that Secretary Yellen and the Biden administration have been quick uh, to stamp out contagion wherever they think it's spreading. And I do believe uh, that they are being successful. Obviously, we have to monitor this very carefully. Uh, The Fed has a facility that allows um, banks to to borrow uh, money uh, to make sure they have the reserves necessary to pay deposits. Uh, but I, I do applaud the Biden administration over the last week. It's been a roller coaster, but I think they acted um, quickly to in, in, in the face of an emergency. Senator, I think it is always very prudent to nip something in the bud. But I wonder how many more buds we're talking about. I mean, is this an indication in your mind? You're on the banking committee. Are you hearing anything about this being an indication that this is actually going to happen more and more? Because obviously, if you follow that thread, at some point, someone's not going to get the $30 billion. 
Well, that's right. Although the Fed facility is is much larger than that, and that does allow banks to to borrow uh, from this Fed facility. But there are lots of things that were quite unique or at least unusual uh, about the Silicon uh, Valley Bank, including the huge numbers of uninsured deposits, deposits above uh, 250,000, plus the fact that it was so concentrated uh, in the tech industry. So I think people are, are looking you know, around the, the environment, the terrain. Um, but I do not think you find a lot of other banks uh, in that particular circumstance. Again, uh, you know, I've, we've been in regular communication with the Department of Treasury and others. Uh, they are monitoring the situation. Uh, but uh, I, I think they've responded quickly and provided confidence. I think it is a good thing, Senator, to show that there is confidence between the banking institutions to say, essentially, look, you're good for it. I'll give you the $30 billion. We'll rally together because I do believe that you, ha- as an institution, are going to be okay. The problem is for so many people who are looking at this, unfortunately, the everyday person, and you know them, you know, the idea of it, they're not always given the benefit of the doubt. They're not given those second chances. So what do you say to the American people who are viewing this perhaps through a lens of, sure, you'll come and help the people who you think are good for it, these major banks, but how about the everyday person suffering with these interest rates? What do you say to them? Well, well, first of all, as the Biden administration has stressed, and I agree with their decision entirely, uh, no owners of, of these banks uh, were bailed out in any way. The, the owners, the stockholders, the bondholders, um, they're going under uh, as they should. In fact, I think that we should claw back uh, some of the, the benefits, the profits from stock sales uh, made by the CEO and other executives. Whether or not there was inside trading, and we'll have to look and see whether there was any criminal activity. But regardless, I think we should claw back um, those profits that they made on the eve of, of the collapse. In terms of the interest rates, um, as you know, what the Fed has been doing is trying to tamp down inflation. Um, many of us have been concerned that they would overshoot uh, by raising interest rates too quickly uh, and too much. Uh, this latest uh, incidence with the banks uh, will actually, I think, make them more cautious uh, about raising interest rates um, uh, going forward. So uh, it, it's hard to see how all this will, will play out. On the Senate Banking Committee, um, we do intend to have hearings. Uh, Sherrod Brown, the chairman of the committee, uh, is going to hold hearings both to do a post-mortem so we figure out exactly what went wrong here and also whether there are additional measures that we should be taking, what additional measures we should be taking uh, to prevent this from happening going forward. Is there a timeline on when those hearings are going to take place? I, it, it will be in the coming weeks, but I don't have the exact schedule, uh, nor do I know exactly who we're going to call, but they, people, the witnesses will be selected based on those two criteria, figuring out exactly what happened at Silicon Valley Bank, um, and then, you know, looking at the lessons learned going forward. I will say, Laura, uh, that uh, Senator Brown and I actually wrote to the Fed back in January, uh, encouraging their ongoing efforts to take additional action to reduce risk uh, in the banking system. They, they'd embarked on an effort to be more diligent, to be more stringent. Uh, it was something that we applauded. I will say many of our, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, we're giving the Federal Reserve all sorts of grief uh, for beginning to look more closely at risks and talking about 
uh, better regulating uh, some of these big banks. I, I don't think they're, they're talking out against it anymore. Senator Van Hollen, thank you so much. We're looking forward to those hearings. I appreciate it tonight. Good to be with I you. Wanna, Thanks. Thank you. I want to bring in now Andrew Ackerman from The Wall Street Journal, Alex Burns from Politico, former Congressman Joe Walsh, and Alentia Johnson, a senior advisor on Joe Biden's 2020 campaign. Let's pick up where we left off, Andrew, on this point with the senator and the idea of, look, you've got these 11 banks rescuing First Republic. Um, do you look at this as a sign of a good thing, a good course correction over the grand scheme of things? Or is this a sign that they're shaking their boots thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we cannot have this be a domino effect? I think it's hard not to look at this as a sign that of seriousness. This is how serious the biggest banks in the country are taking this, that they're going to put $30 billion of their own money to shore up what could be, you know, this next domino in this banking crisis. Um, I think it's reassuring as well. Um, I think... The most important takeaway from the last week is $42 billion. That's how much money fled uh, Silicon Valley Bank in a single day last Thursday. And that shows you that we're not in this period. It's, it's not it's a wonderful life anymore where you have people lining up um, uh, to, to, uh, for a bank George run. Bailey. Yep, yeah, you go. you've got you've got money moving instantaneously with the click of a button. Uh, it's very hard to write rules for that type of situation. It's not clear that regulations alone would have um, prevented this bank run. I mean, if you lose a quarter of your deposits in a single day, $42 billion, there, I don't think there's any bank that could survive that level of outflows. Um, the, the sort of reassuring bit is that what they did on Sunday and then the news today does appear to have uh, prevented you know, any nightmare scenario from, that appears to have stopped that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that we will have to watch and we're watching it closely at The Wall Street Journal to see what happens. There's going to be a review. The Fed, the 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 Fed was the um, regulator for Silicon mm-hmm. Valley Bank and the examiners uh, had a job to do. It's not clear what they did. We have reported that they did flag some of the problems at Silicon Valley Bank, but it's not clear if they did anything or what happened. Um, That's a good point. The idea of you know flagging it, and we're doing this post mortem, and how this is all looking. And of course, people were very quick to be able to understand what was the cause of this. And so you almost wonder, Alencia, if you're able to ascertain the cause, then perhaps you're able to avoid the problem in and mm-hmm. of itself. And so when you look at the reaction, is this you know the reaction level what should be, or is proactivity better here? Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a bit of both, right? I think the reaction to do the number one thing of protecting customers, right? The reality is we want to make sure that people were able to get their paycheck, that small businesses did not collapse. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I saw so many stories of small business owners talking about how losing their deposits would literally eliminate their business that they have been building for 10 years. The piece, the proactive piece, I think this gives us an opportunity to really think about bank regulations, what happened in 20. 18, my other former boss, Senator Elizabeth Warren, like this is her jam. She has been all over the media talking about, you know, we've got to put back in place regulations to prevent this from happening. We can't just have the stopgap when, you know, yes, the president is doing his job to protect the American people and these banks are coming in, as you, you were saying. But we got to prevent this from happening again, especially where we are in this economy and people yeah, are trying to avoid a recession. Well, the other and everything you just said and you just said is right. But the other disconnect thing here is. 
how quickly both parties really jumped in to bail out Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, how quickly they jumped in. And you're an average regular American out there, sitting out there, who's just gone through three years of COVID, and the wealthy did a hell of a lot better getting through COVID. They were bailed out. This notion of bailing people out, and I think we bail out the wealthy, the powerful, and the influential in this country in a nanosecond, no doubt, no hesitation. Mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats come together to do Can that. agree on that thing. Well, I mean, in a heartbeat. That's why you hear Senator Van Hollen trying to really draw the distinction between uh, making sure that the people are not losing their deposits, having their businesses wiped out versus yeah. how executives and investors are doing at these banks. But I think in some ways the most telling thing we heard from the senator was that reference to we're going to find out if there were laws broken here, mm-hmm. right? That one of the things, uh, uh, Congressman Walsh knows it as well as uh, anyone in town, uh, one of the things that got voters just white hot angry after 2008 was that nobody went to jail. And right. I think that you can get away yeah. with a whole lot of bailing people out uh, if, if there's also a bit of purple walking involved as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is 2008. I mean, there, there's some similarities, right? Like today you see Jamie Dimon and the big banks kind of it's not a shotgun marriage, but right. in 2008, you saw all of the banks combining. The, the government was coordinating that, was sort of arranging mergers at the last minute to prevent uh, bank failures. Um, but on the other hand, this isn't 2008. This was not a bank rescue. The bank, went, the management's gone. The bondholders are wiped out. The stockholders are wiped out. Um, Does it matter they, that it's not the government who helped First Republic today? It's really other banks that make a distinction I mean, for more current news, too? I mean, assuming, I mean, I think it's almost better if it was the banks that did this on their own. I think it was clearly there was some coordination with the federal government because that means it, it, that draws the distinction from 2008, where you don't have Timothy Geithner calling all these CEOs and telling them to find a buyer, find a buyer, find a buyer. This was kind of on their own. After the after the regulators had stepped in over the weekend, I think it's somewhat re, it should be somewhat reassuring, um, and um, you know and and the depositors I think that the issue they did get a rescue the the, the depositors got a rescue and I think that that is a policy issue that um, we're gonna have to think about was that good policy. I well, think that, that, that's what know, the hearings will be about, too. As you mentioned, the idea of the senator going forward, what we're going to glean from those moments as well is going to be really important. Everywhere, stay, stay put. We're going to talk about what's going on next in just a moment. Next, how drones may be changing the face of warfare. Will there be more confrontations now that there are unmanned drones in the skies? We'll talk about it next. Tensions in the skies over the Black Sea, as stunning video released by the U.S. military shows the moments Russian jets dumped fuel on and then appeared to hit a U.S. drone. The first direct physical contact between U.S. and Russian aircraft since the start of Putin's war in Ukraine, leading to a blame game between officials in both countries. But what would have happened if it had actually been a manned craft that was forced into the ocean? Back now with me, my panel, and we're joined by CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton, who I've been waiting to hear from about this very issue. Because, look, the U.S. did send another drone into the area today, probably a way of can't-hold-us-down moment. However, what is going to be the strategy going forward, knowing that this has happened over the Black Sea? Russia has given a different explanation, shall we say, in the video 
something very different. What do you say? Yeah, so Laura, the the big thing is that, yeah, we're going to tell the Russians, let's go ahead and make sure that uh, we can still have the rights to uh, fly over the Black Sea, uh, fly over international airspace, fly over international waters, do all of those different things. But the one other thing that's going on is European Command is actually conducting a safety review right now of drone flights over the Black Sea. So on the one hand, we're asserting our right to fly over international airspace and international waters. On the other hand, we're also doing a flight safety review to make sure that uh, none of this happens again. Now, you know, that's going to be one of those things where perhaps, uh, you know, all the preventive measures that we take might not have any effect. But on the other hand, we are also looking at uh, ways to improve our capacity to collect intelligence, which is exactly what that drone was doing uh, at that at that moment when it was hit. Were you surprised um, that we were able to see this video footage so quickly? I mean, this is obviously there were these competing statements about what really happened. Um, Russia having a sort of a it wasn't me moment, and this was something that was at fault, your sharp maneuvering, as opposed to what the United States said about it. And then it was made public. It was declassified. What do you say to that? So the Biden administration has made, a, I think, a very smart move in the intelligence arena when it comes to declassifying information in general. The Ukraine war, uh, the first indications of the Russian troop placements, that was all revealed to the press uh, before the Russians actually moved. And that is an interesting and new strategy that the Biden administration has implemented. This is kind of like that, because what they were able to do is they were able to not only refute what the Russians have said, but they were also able to prove the U.S. point of view and that that was the correct way of describing the incident and the correct way to assess what happened. What does this do in terms of having that um, accuracy, shall we say, in these conversations. Obviously, Russia operates a great deal through propaganda, and the people who likely would need to be convinced or told the truth won't have seen this. Well, look, I'm not, I'm not the, the military expert here. I'm a political reporter. Good point. Go back to I was as a political reporter, but. what it certainly does here in the U.S., right, is that it's really important at this point in a war that has now gone on for quite some time for the American people to feel uh, confident that what they're hearing from the administration uh, has real credibility to it, right? That the whole lot of Americans uh, of a whole a lot of generations have had the experience of seeing a war you know, sort of start on what seems to be a credible premises, and then over time you start to question, uh, is the government giving me uh, the real story? And I think that video like this is crucial to the president and other members of, the, as, of his administration being able to go to the American people and to go to the world and say we are behaving uh, responsibly, that, you know, whatever you're hearing from, uh, you know, uh, RT on the Internet or whatever, uh, don't take their word for it because, in fact, we have uh, we have the receipts. And part of the, oh, part, I want you to hear some part, I want you to respond to this because there's been a, a new Quinnipiac poll, probably to your point as well, that's showing um, and talking about the way in which the administration has to continuously make the case, really, especially in light of recent statements by Governor DeSantis, for example, although he has mm-hmm. been um, scolded by members of his own party on his commentary about the idea... My earring just fell off. Were they listening to me right now in the middle of this conversation? I'm talking about Florida's governor, not me. I'm taking the other one off now, too. I like to match on air. So even though Governor Tentis' comments did not match his own party, see what I did there? Um, the idea here that this poll talks about how Americans are almost evenly split on Biden's Ukraine response, does this sort of transparency give more confidence to say, look, if the president's telling us this is what's happening, if the administration's saying this, we should have more confidence then on the budgetary issues he's talking about and the level and 
tenure of aid. I don't know about that, Laura, but this whole incident makes me think that President Biden should keep his focus on what matters, and that is us helping Ukraine defeat Russia. And, and if that means we have to increase what we're doing right now for Ukraine, that's got to be the focus. And don't make a big deal out of this one incident. How do you see it, Alencia? You know, I, I think it's for those of us who are not military experts here. When I first heard about this, I think I, I thought about this in the same way that a lot of people who they'll hear these things, you clearly see the aggression from Russia. You clearly see why you actually have to pick a side in what is happening between Ukraine and Russia. And so to the point that we're all talking about transparency and how this administration is handling, supporting Ukraine, in contrast to how the previous administration was kind of basically flirting with Russia, right? It, it draws a line in the sand of, are you actually here to not just protect our nation, but ensure that world democracies continue to stand? And we clearly see who the aggressor is, and we have video evidence to prove it. I'm here having some deja vu, as many of us are. Within the last month or so, we've heard statements and reporting about trying to recover downed drones or things that are flying in the air and who's going to get it and the transmission of intelligence on it. Um, clearly, you see the analogy in terms of what we saw with the Chinese spy balloon and other objects that were flying. In this instance, does the failure of the U.S. to recover fully that drone impact our own national security? It could, but not probably as severely as most people think, because what, what has happened, we've developed our techniques. We know that these kinds of incidents are going to happen. You know, it's just a, a, a question of odds, really, and probabilities. Uh, but, uh, you know, you look at uh, various incidents that have happened in the past. Ever since the incident with the Chinese back in 2001 with the EP-3, which was a Navy surveillance plane uh, that uh, was forced to land on Hainan Island in, in China, uh, based on a, a crash with a Chinese aircraft uh, that where the pilot ended up dying, uh, that incident uh, resulted in a complete aircraft landing on Chinese soil. The Chinese got a hold of all of that equipment, all of the intelligence associated with that. And since that point in time, the U.S. has made a concerted effort to make sure that equipment, when it is attacked, when it, things fall out of the sky, that the equipment is zeroized, which means that it cannot be accessed. Uh, so that is what we think happened in this particular case. And if it did happen, then the intelligence value is going to be much less uh, than it would otherwise be. So it's, uh, you know, it's not the best situation in the world, obviously, but at least it's manageable from a, a national security standpoint. Really important. Thank you all. Thank you, Colonel Layden, especially everyone up next. An Alabama school system is unveiling something new in the classroom. It's a bulletproof shelter. Would you want this in your child's class? And it's a real question. Why or why not? We'll talk about it after this. One Alabama school system is taking action in the aftermath of the deadly mass shooting last year in Uvalde that killed 19 students and two teachers. It's installed collapsible, bulletproof safe rooms in two classrooms for special needs students at an elementary school. Officials say that there is a plan to install even more in the district. Now, each safe room is designed to be opened and fully deployed as a shelter in as little as 10 seconds and can hold up to 30 
people. Joining us to talk more about all this, United Media Analyst Sarah Fisher, and back with us, Alex Burns, Alencia Johnson, and Joe Walsh. Uh, Walsh, let me talk to you first about this, Sarah. I mean, the idea that this is happening right now, um, and we know, sadly, we don't have enough time in the show to cover the amount of mass shootings that have taken place even this year, and school shootings even more tragic. Um, When you think about this as a step, have people given up on the idea of prevention and now it's about trying to accept that it might actually happen? I don't think people have given up, but between now and the time where we come up with a solution, you have to protect the kids. And so this becomes something that's viable. But the challenge is, I was reading about these you know, rooms today, they're $60,000 a piece. This is not something that's viable for every single classroom in every single school. And so you have to figure out, how are you going to be able to come up with solutions that are actually feasible? While this might seem like a good fit, there's no way every school in the country can afford one of these in every classroom. Every school, every classroom, every district... It's no way to really afford it, given the, all the constraints already. But think about this. You know, you've been a congressman, um, and certainly you have lived through and legislatively your fair share of mass shootings in this country as well. When you see something like this, combined with the fact that you have a lot of people who, in, the, in recent mass shootings, have been, you know, the everyday person to fight back because there's a thought sometimes that no one's coming or there's no time for someone to come save them. You know, when you hear about this, what goes through your mind as a former legislator that this is where we are? I think as a former legislator, I think, and and maybe you'll all disagree with me, this is a tool. This is reality. Laura, I don't see it as, oh, we're giving up. We can't stop school shootings, so we need a bunch of safe rooms. I think it's just accepting reality. We should try to do everything we can do to minimize school shootings But in the meantime, this is a tool because the bottom line is protect our children, period, however we can. And just to make note, again, this is featured in classrooms of special needs students. So that might have some additional relevance in thinking about the kind of drills that are taking place, the preparedness. I mean, I have a a fourth grader, I have a third grader, and my kids have been doing active shooter drills since they were in preschool, really. And so as a parent, I look at this and say, I'm sad this happens. I'm sad that this has to be in a classroom, but I want it in my kid's classroom. Yeah, I mean, look, I shared with you all on the break that I was in school when um, Columbine happened, and I remember having to do active shooter drills. The reality is, and I I don't want to say people have given up, but it is a hard, one-sided fight to have passed gun control in this country because there is one party that is completely against us doing something about the too many guns and too few, if not, if any, restrictions on who can afford, who can uh, purchase a, an assault weapon. The other piece of this, too, is when you have state legislators that actually do want to pass comprehensive gun reform, we have a Supreme Court that unfortunately sided with the gun lobby last year against New York State, right? And so it it is challenging right now. We continue to see kids, babies are losing their lives, also losing their innocence because they have to go to school wondering whether or not they might be a victim. Parents, as you're mentioning, this very real reality, and yet one side of our political, one, one political party just wants to put up thoughts and prayers, and the other one is literally climbing up a mountain trying to get people to understand we have to do something in this country about guns. Before you respond to this, I do want to note, because a lot of the conversation where it's fallen at times along partisan lines has been about the types of weapons we're talking about, assault rifle, assault weapon bans and beyond. 
This particular rapid deploy safe room, it can withstand up to a .308 caliber rifle. To give you a little bit of context, an AR-15 gun are most commonly .223 caliber. And the Uvalde shootings, Parkland, Sandy Hook, just to name a few, they used AR-15 style weapons. So it's essentially constructed in some way to withstand um, to some degree that. What's your comment? Look, uh, as a political reporter, as a politician, as a political strategist, you, you cover or interact with a lot of issues that are really cross national lines and that nobody's quite figured out how to solve. Nobody has sort of cracked the code on uh, climate change or uh, fuel prices or uh, economic inequality or uh, sort of racial equality. Um, this is an American problem that you don't see around the world, right? So we're sitting here saying like, we should do everything to uh, help the kids. Um, uh, you know, you hate to see it, but like maybe it's necessary. Like it manifestly is not necessary. They're they're not experimenting uh, with these safe rooms in like Belgium, right? They're just not because they don't have to. So you know, you can but make it's the, the reality here. Sure, but you can make the case that this is like whatever we've decided as a nation that we want to sort of have our kids in uh, safe rooms um, rather than do something about guns. But like we have obviously not tried everything at our disposal short of this. You know, Sarah, you made the point about the cost um, and the idea. You know. During the pandemic, early in the pandemic, when there were conversations around ventilators, for example, there was discussions about medical ethics. Like, how do you decide who gets to have a limited, finite resource? We were talking about school funding. It's a Mm -hmm. limited, finite resource. And so how do you go about deciding which classrooms get the benefit of this, knowing that although it's not manifestly necessary, it is here in many respects. How are those decisions, you think, going to be made about who would qualify to be protected? Well, I think you made a good point that it's the special needs classrooms that they're starting with first. It might be harder to provide those kids direction to activate quickly in the case of an emergency. So it makes sense that that's where you would start. But if you zoom out into the school district level, I imagine that's where it gets challenging, where you have to compete with other school districts for the funding. Who is going to provide the funding? Is it going to be by your congressional district? Is it going to be at the state level? I'm not quite sure, but that is going to put schools pitted against each other to try to fight for those resources. And that's a shame, right? Schools should be working together to try to make all this happen. But at that cost level, it's tough. Wanted to make one other quick point on this. You know, I remember growing up, my mom would tell me about having um, duck and cover drills and about having bomb shelters in her school. And there's an interesting and eerie simulation, uh, something similar to this here, where we have a new risk and a new threat. I never did a duck and cover drill growing up to kids in schools. And it's sad that this has just sort of always been the American reality, but it's gotten exponentially worse with guns. Can I say, though, to this budget piece really quickly? We know who's not going, what districts are not going to get a lot of budget to protect themselves. School districts in low-income areas, the ones that are overwhelmingly students of colors. And so we're going to see some systemic inequity in all this as well, Well, of what kids were going to be protected. You're right, and they should. In this debate about guns, there's not going to be a solution next week. So as long as there's not a solution next week, um, for a lot of the reasons you brought up, we have to do whatever we can to keep our kids safe. Safe rooms or more security in the schools, more armed security in schools, whatever. These should all be on the table to think about. Can we just say, you know, on behalf of the teachers out there, this is another thing we're expecting of our nation's teachers, that they're going to be trained on how to deploy these sort of safe rooms and try to keep the children safe. I mean, I drop my kids off at school every morning. I, I'm, I'll be honest, I have a silent prayer that I say and a thank, thank a gratitude extension to the teachers because they're only supposed to be teaching my children. And I'm asking them to save My heart's life is unbelievable. Everyone, your or your kid's favorite app might be banned by the government. So is that a free speech issue or, well, we'll talk about it next. 
Momentum against TikTok is brewing, as you know, and the White House issuing an ultimatum to the Chinese owners of the popular social media platform. Spin off their share of the company or face a ban. Everyone back with me now, our panel on these issues talking about it all. I mean, the idea here that the administration is demanding that TikTok's, um, you know, Chinese owners spin off their share. Tell me what's going on here in reality. So there's a committee for foreign investment in the U.S. that reviews all foreign investment in apps in U.S. companies. TikTok invested and acquired a U.S. company years ago called Musical.ly. It was tiny at the time. But what happened is they put billions of dollars into paid marketing into it, and it blew up, especially during the pandemic. The Trump administration in 2020 saw this amid rising tensions between that administration and China, and they thought we should ban this app. They tried to do it and force it to sell. They lost in court. Then an administration came in, the Biden administration, and his CFIUS, uh, you know, Committee for Foreign Investment, took another look at it, and they've been negotiating with TikTok for the past two years to figure out, all right, what's a solution we could fix here so that you can alleviate our national security concerns and exist in the U.S.? And what made this decision this week momentous was they essentially signaled to TikTok, look, we don't think there's a solution. All the stuff you're promising to do, move the U.S. data uh, back to being stored here, data privacy stuff, we don't think it's going to work. Either you give up your Chinese ownership stake or... Uh, we're going to ban you. And by the way, the reason it matters that they have an ownership stake from China is because it's required by law there that you have to give the government data. That's the concern for U.S. regulators. And on that point, I mean, before it was a conversation about maybe banning it on government devices. Now this is talking about a national ban, no one being able to use it. Is that a good idea in your mind? No, I think it's a bad idea. And I really worry about the first, uh, the, the free speech, uh, First Amendment connotations here. Republicans, the national security issues obviously need to be explored. But, Laura, I wonder, Republicans tend to overblow these national security issues. And it just seems like the targeting of TikTok uh, seems to be egregious. I know there's a, a potential piece of legislation in the Senate to more broadly go after any uh, 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 platform that may pose national security issues. I just think it's like... China bashing, I don't mean to defend China, to target TikTok. Well, you know, I, I want to just interject for the idea of the First Amendment, because we often hear about this in connection with social media platforms more broadly. And we all know, of course, the First Amendment meant to stop the government yeah. from infringing on free right. speech. Obviously, a private company is not the government that's doing that. And so those are conversations about, you know, cancel culture or censorship. And are you content specific when it comes to TikTok and a proposed ban by the government about an entity? There are questions if it's a broad enough ban, not content specific, not based on what you're going to say, but you just can't use the app. It might not have the same implications of the First Amendment. Having said that, um, there is still the very real point that Joe's making about what this signals politically to really you know, join in on a lot of pressure to have this ban. What do you think about this politically? Well, look, I think it's very, very clear that if this administration is going to outright ban TikTok, they are going to need to do a whole lot more uh, explaining of everything Sarah just said uh, to the American public, which is pretty enthusiastic about using TikTok, right? And, you know, if this is by no means an exact comparison. I don't want uh, you to think I'm sort of drawing a literal link here. But Rolling back uh, public use of a very popular consumer product in tobacco or uh, uh, e-cigarettes 
takes years or generations to explain to people who love using this consumer product, uh, we think it's bad for you and this is why and here's why we're going to make it harder or impossible for you to use it. We've obviously not heard that kind of communication from really anybody in Washington at this point. You hear members of Congress talk about how TikTok's bad or China's dangerous, um, but for the folks who are actually on the app and loving the app, how many of them hear that? Do they actually know in Congress, and we all know, and you've been in Congress, and this is not an offense to you, but I doubt that most members of Congress are like, let me tell you everything about TikTok. Let me tell you how it works, what you use it for, et cetera. And so it's not quite keeping pace in many ways with what the expectations are. Remember the Supreme Court right now looking at Section 230 still, the Communications Decency Act, let alone what's happening with TikTok. Yeah, but some of these things are super clear. I mean, the Mm -hmm. fact that U.S. user data was being stored in China, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that's a problem. So Congress has enough information, in my opinion, to be able to make some decisions here. But I want to go back to your point about banning, you know, things like e-cigarettes or cigarettes. We are not banning short-form video technology. We're only banning one app that carries it. If consumers are going to have other options. They have Reels on Instagram and Facebook. They have, you know, Reddit-acquired Dub Smash. Snapchat has Spotlight. So you're not banning a certain type of product. You're just banning one app that carries that product. But you are, but you are banning the specific product that the consumers have overwhelmingly chosen sure, sure. over those other and, options and, you just mentioned. Right? So I don't disagree with you that there's a difference between uh, sort of banning controlled substances and uh, banning one specific app. But, you know, I do think like, if you're going to tell people... You need you, to make that case. Like, make why, that shouldn't case. The, why shouldn't the consumer be able to say, like, I know my data is in China and well, like, I've decided well, to take that risk? And the clear right? thing, you were talking about how Republicans are going after TikTok. I will just say this as a campaigner. TikTok is the app and the platform that organized Gen Z. It organized marginalized yeah. folks yeah. to deliver an outcome in the 22 midterms that Republicans were not happy with, right? Didn't and so, President Biden invite a number of big he TikTokers invi- he to sure the White House? And so to that point, yeah. it's actually, there clearly must be a national security risk if President Biden is saying, hey, this app that we have been embracing these creators, we are grateful for their self-organizing and able to speak to each other in ways that the party can't. If he is you know, making a bet to say, hey, we actually need to have some regulations here, that means it's a serious issue. But again, there's a political piece where Republicans start this war because they don't really win when TikTok is thriving because of who their base is. Yeah. Well, we're, the conversation won't stop here, don't worry. But that was about the length of the TikTok just now. There you go, everyone. <laughs> now, get this. A 5,000-mile-wide blob of seaweed is descending on Florida, ready to deposit the whole lot of rotting goop. When, where, and why? I'll tell you next. All right, everyone, picture this. Spring is coming, the weather's getting warmer, and you want to get out that swimsuit that maybe you bought last summer but you never wore. Then you get to your vacation spot and you try to settle in, and the beach is covered in this stinky mess. A colossal blob of seaweed is headed for the shores of Florida and other coastlines in the Gulf of Mexico, and just in time for spring break, perhaps. Experts say that they will, while it can provide a healthy habitat for sea life while it's floating, it can have devastating impacts once it actually hits the beaches. This year, Sargassum Mass could be the largest on record, nearly twice the width of the continental United States. It's so large, it can be seen from space. When the seaweed actually gets to shore, it'll pile up in mounds that are difficult to remove, In fact, it can be dangerous to humans and wildlife due to the level of toxicity. And as an added bonus, it smells like rotten eggs. Take a look at these pictures, everyone, from the coast of Florida. These right here 
are from Barbados, where an expert tells CNN locals are using 1,600 dump trucks a day to clean up the beaches. And then these images from Playa del Carmen. For now, researchers are looking into ways to grapple with the threat of massive seaweed blobs. But as for this year's bloom, experts warn the worst may be yet to come. Up next, everyone, dozens of Mar-a-Lago staff, I'm talking servers, I'm talking aides, have now been subpoenaed. Stay with us. Now to a CNN exclusive, at least two dozen people from a Mar-a-Lago resort, you know the one, while the staffers to top aides, they were subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith, according to multiple sources familiar with the classified documents investigation. It all comes as his communication aide, Margot Martin, appeared today before the grand jury investigating Trump's handling of classified documents. Now, she's among a small group of White House aides who moved with the former president to Florida after he lost the election. I want to bring in former State Department spokesperson Nayara Huck, Republican pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson, legal analyst Elliot Williams, and Axios' Margaret Talib. Let me begin with you here, Elliot, on this exclusive reporting from CNN. Um, the idea that we've got all these subpoenas now brewing with the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation. What is the significance of this now to you? Sure. Now, it's easy to forget that the Mar-a-Lago investigation has been going on because all the headlines for the last two weeks have focused on New York City uh, and an investigation of the former president there, but also um, Fulton County, Georgia, where the president's also being investigated there. And the Mar-a-Lago investigation has been carrying on this entire time. Look, any investigation is going to require speaking to other employees other than the individual who might be at the center of it. So it shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, it's significant because whenever anybody gets a subpoena, no matter who they are, it's a big deal. And it's evidence and it's testimony. Who knows where this ends up, but it's a big deal. Speaking of who was actually subpoenaed here, I mean, we're talking about at least two dozen people, Margaret, okay? Um, you've got some of his closest aides um, and lawyers. You, based on what you know about Donald Trump, how much information would the resort staff members, for example, actually have um, compared to the restaurant servers, for example, the housekeepers? What would they potentially have and know? Well, look, I think when you're uh, talking to folks, uh, when you're talking about subpoenas, it can cover a lot of ground. It can cover everything from individual direct conversations with them or something that they might have in their possession or something that they might have seen to conversations that they were in the room for or passers-by for or a fly on the wall for or things that they'd heard from other people. Yes, that's circumstantial. But, I mean, I think the bottom line is we don't know yet all these details. But um, there, there's a spectrum of discretion among public officials or politicians. Some uh, office holders or um, former office holders are very discreet and only um, would talk in a room with a couple of people. And then other people are very convivial and always like to tell stories and always like to have a lot of people coming and going. I think we... We have a decent idea of uh, how the former president operated. And so you cast a wide net, you may find a wide variety of things. It's absolutely true. I want to switch gears for a moment, thinking of Florida, Mar-a-Lago to Florida more broadly. Because earlier today, we had Secretary Miguel Cardona um, on with Anderson Cooper. And actually, he wrote an op-ed, Kristen, um, against restricting books in schools, which makes people think, obviously, about Florida and the culture wars that are happening there. He wrote it in the Tampa Bay Times. And here's what he said just tonight on with, um, actually, John Berman this evening. 
He said, listen to this. Let our parents and educators uh, work together to find what's best for the students. I'm all in favor of parents having a more uh, say and a more of a role in what their students are learning. What I'm not in favor of is having state-level politicians insert themselves in local schools uh, to gain political points. Not a very veiled attack against who he's talking about, obviously Governor Ron DeSantis. As an example, how does this play? Well, state authorities have always had the leeway to handle the issue of education, whether you're a blue state or a red state. That's often how this operates. And clearly voters in Florida have been fine, broadly, at least a majority of them who turned out to reelect Ron DeSantis during the last midterm. So I think politically, right now, Ron DeSantis' handling of education doesn't seem to be hurting him with Florida voters and doesn't seem to be hurting him in the Republican primary. Now, what I think is fascinating is, you know, you take Governor DeSantis's handling of curriculum in schools. And there's a lot of talk about, well, he's trying to ban books, et cetera. And a lot of the examples that get brought up are things that, in my view, don't actually prove the case. So, for instance, um, there were some examples of math textbooks that the Florida Department of Education rejected. There were some things that they rejected that I don't think necessarily there was real reason to, you know, examples around statistics, for instance, teaching kids about how do you measure something like racial bias. I work in the survey research field. I think that's a useful thing to teach kids. So if I was governor of Florida, I might not have rejected that. But generally, Florida voters and particularly Republican primary voters do seem to be pretty happy with the way Governor DeSantis is handling this issue. Speaking of that, I mean, there's one, obviously, if he does run for office, for national office as the president of the United States candidate, uh, what happens and what plays in Florida may not translate more broadly in a general election, as we know. But the New York Times actually has a story. It's getting such traction um, about groups in Florida that are actually combing through different textbooks in the era, looking for these prohibitive topics, trying to figure out if what's being published or what's in the textbook falls in line with the Florida political, Florida legislative initiative or something else. How does this ring for you? We've always talked about education being local when we talk about it state, but it's truly at that local community level. The challenge we're seeing right now is this is not an organic movement. This is prompted by national organizations that have taken education, realized what it means to families, including Hispanic voters, which is the number one issue, and politicized it along the lines of identity. And so they have shared everything from talking points to meeting times to names of books with local communities. So the idea that this is about what local parents want is is part of the smokescreen we're seeing right now. And Ron DeSantis has clearly benefited politically from that. The challenge is it's not necessarily, as Kristen said, about things that are truly objectionable. Laws are being written vague enough, but with enough political pressure that teachers and local authorities are scared. They don't want to get in trouble. They will remove. We have multiple stories around the country, not just in Florida, of teachers opting to just remove books that talk about queer identity, that talk about, uh, you know, racism and systemic racism, because they just don't want to fall afoul of laws they don't truly understand. I totally disagree with the idea that it is sinister for parents to be organizing around their kids' schools. The idea of telling people about school board meeting times or giving them information that they can use when speaking with public officials, that's that's organizing. That's something that the left and the right does. And I think in that New York Times piece, they give a really interesting example of a textbook company that reformed and revised their explanation of the Rosa Parks story. McGraw-Hill. 
Well, this, this is a, a different one. I think it was called like student studies. Okay. And with these like asinine revisions, right, that take yep. the, the issue of race out of the Rosa Parks story. And it is notable that buried at the end of this New York Times piece, it says the Florida Department of Education has not accepted this textbook. It is not being taught to children in Florida schools because it violates Florida state standards that require the teaching about race in schools. There are so two I've, statistics in this New York Times investigation that stand out to me. One is that the textbook industry is a $5 billion industry. Money talks, and when you're facing political pressure in a state as big as Florida, the, it is the textbook companies uh, that are under pressure to blink, and some of them are blinking, at least in the draft versions. Um, if, if there are governors, including Governor DeSantis, governors of other red states, that either personally believe that this is the right thing to do or feel that they need to do it to court their base, it's much less likely uh, to, to work efforts to whitewash or gloss over uncomfortable aspects of U.S. history if the textbook companies don't go along with it. And to your point, uh, this this conservative group that's part of the volunteer effort to vet the textbooks um, sought to reject 28 out of 38 textbooks. That tells you how prolific uh, this effort is. And it is not just contained to Florida. There are efforts like this all over the country. What's happening in Houston now. Arkansas, for example, as well, the bill. Uh, news in Houston today was that the state took uh, over control or announced it will take over control of that uh, school system because it's been failing. Um, but there's a real concern that it's going to become a test and case. And here's now why Texas is such an important point. Um, what happens in Texas because it is the largest system of public schools. Textbook manufacturers cater to what are Texas standards, because if they make it that way, then they're able to sell books at least to Texas, if not broader. So what happens in Texas does impact, say, what my children might be learning in Maryland. Um, And the grassroots organizing, parents being involved, is the entire spirit of local education. The challenge is when a group in Utah is using political action funding to then seed candidates who are then activating local entities and locals um, on a new national anti-woke agenda that otherwise might not be truly what people in a community want. Well, we're going to have to keep looking into this. It's not going anywhere, everyone. Stay tuned on all of these issues. Thank you so much. The deadly kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico has dominated the headlines, but the mother of a 25-year-old North Carolina woman found dead on vacation in Mexico is pleading for help from President Biden for action on her daughter's case. That mother is here to tell her story next. The kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico grabbing headlines, but this week, the mother of another American who was killed in Mexico is pleading with President Biden to help solve her daughter's murder. 25-year-old Chanquela Robinson was on vacation with friends in Mexico last October when she was found unresponsive. Family says her friends claimed she died of alcohol poisoning, but the autopsy determined she died from trauma to her neck and spine. A disturbing video, it's too graphic to show more than the stills, circulated last fall showing a physical altercation between Shanquella and another person. It's not clear when the video was taken or if the video depicts the moment she suffered the fatal injury. Mexican authorities issued an arrest warrant in the murder last year. That person has not yet been identified stateside. Attorneys for the family writing in their letter this week, quote, My clients recognize that the U.S. government has many priorities and responsibilities, but believe that intervening in this case 
would not only serve the interests of justice, but also send a clear message that transnational criminal activities will not be tolerated. Shanquella's mother, Salamandra Robinson, joins me now, along with attorney for the family, Sue Ann Robinson. Thank you both for being here. Let me begin with you, Salamandra, because when I first heard about what happened to your daughter, it was devastating for any mother to hear, to think about the amount of time that has transpired since then, even more heartbreaking. How are you doing right now? I'm okay, taking day by day. And thinking about those days that have gone by in particular, I mean, we know there's been a lot of focus on recent deaths in Mexico, but your daughter last October died. And you've been calling for justice for her for months. And I know the FBI is involved, ma'am. What are you hearing now from authorities? Well, I haven't heard anything from authority. FBI haven't told me anything. They said that they're not allowed to let you know anything right now. So no one's been communicating with you to give you updates on what's happened in the investigation? You haven't been kept informed, really? No, I no, I have not. I had one call from the FBI and they said that it was due to they was waiting on a paper to come back from Mexico and they received it. That's all I was told. When did you last have contact with them? It's been about a month ago. What has it been like for you waiting to hear information? Very hard because it seemed like that something should have already been done about it. Someone should have already been arrested, but no one happened. So that's what we're trying to push because, you know, it just seemed like they just letting it lay there, not doing anything about it. And that's the reason that we wrote letters to the um, president to see can we get something um, pushed up a little bit because um, somebody's not doing something. So, Ann, let me ask you about this, because the letters that have been written, I mean, they've gone to the president of the United States. This this case, this young woman's story has been circulated nationally. People are really interested in trying to get justice for this young woman. What are you hoping and asking the government to do to help this family? We are asking for a high level of diplomatic intervention. And that just means that someone from the Department of State or the president himself has to step in and have a conversation with the heads of state in Mexico. The head of federal law enforcement here has to have a conversation with the head of law enforcement in Mexico. The conversation has to be had in order to prioritize the case. I did have the opportunity on behalf of the family to kind of go on a fact-finding mission in Mexico. And the reason why was simple. The family was being ping-ponged. We know in America, and I'm a former prosecutor and so are you, that victims have rights. And so they have the right to be informed. They have the right to be kept abreast of what's happening in the case. And that's what was so shocking to me, that they were being given no information, which was leading all of us to believe that nothing was being done. And so going to Mexico and hearing from Mexican authorities directly that We've completed our investigation. We've submitted all of our evidence and our physical evidence to the United States already. And essentially the ball is in their court was the the, the biggest revelation of the trip um, and understanding that, OK, now I'm we're back and we need to focus on the United States either extraditing the person who's named in the investigation that the Mexican authorities conducted or 
something even more simple. The United States could ask for concurrent jurisdiction and take over and do their own investigation of the case and prosecute the people responsible or person responsible here in the United States. And the concurrent jurisdiction is something that has been done before is possible. It's part of the idea of a kind of reciprocity between the two countries for the very reason you described. But, you know, CNN did reach out to the White House, Ms. Robinson, um, for comment. Press Secretary Crin Jean-Pierre said this when asked about your daughter's case today. Listen to what she had to say, ma'am. Because there's an FBI investigation underway, there's very little that we can say. Uh, we got to, as you know, we are very careful about um, criminal investigations or any uh, investigations that are uh, currently happening uh, through DOJ in this particular case, FBI. But our hearts go out uh, to, um, again, to the families. And I would have to refer you to the DOJ and the State Department on this. Salamandra. What do you make of that response? What are you thinking when you hear that from the White House representative? Well, that's pretty much what I've been hearing the whole time, last five months. And thinking, knowing that's the case, I mean, you know, over the past few weeks, there was pretty much nonstop coverage on the death of other Americans in Mexico, that presumably at the hands of Mexican drug cartel members. You don't think your daughter's case has gotten this level of attention. Do you have an idea of why that might be or why you think that's the case? No, that's what I'm trying to find out why. Because you, they have evidence. Someone should have been locked up. I felt that if they would have questioned someone, someone might have broken told what happened. They haven't even called anyone in to see, um, you know, the accident questions to her. And don't seem like they're trying to. You know, just thinking about all that's happening, and there's so much more information to find out, and we're going to continue to follow what happened. But, you know, I'm a mother, Salamandra, and it would break my heart to have a conversation about my daughter and to have anything people know about her just reduced to that moment. So can you leave me with a little information about what you want people to know about your beautiful daughter? The kind heart that she had. You know, she loved people, you know, and I don't know how she was treated like this. And I would like to have justice for her. We're looking at a picture of your beautiful daughter, Shanquella. I have no doubt that the heart comes from you. Thank you both for joining us. We're going to keep following along with what happened. I certainly hope you get justice for your daughter. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Up next, another legal battle, this time between aircraft maker Boeing and the families of victims who died when one of its jets crashed. At issue, should Boeing pay for the victims' suffering in the minutes before the disaster? We're going to examine the company's argument, and what they're saying just might surprise you. That's next. It's been four years since the tragic crash of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, killing 157 passengers and crew. Families of the victims and Boeing attorneys are in a legal battle over whether Boeing should have to pay for the victims' suffering in the minutes leading up to the deadly crash. Now, Boeing's attorneys argue the victims died instantaneously and say any hardship they may have experienced before impact 
is not legally relevant for calculating damages. Back with me now, Nayara Huck, Kirsten, Kristen Soltis Anderson, excuse me, Elliot Williams, and Margaret Tollif as well. Let me just give a little bit more context here because I think it's really a little bit shocking about the arguments being made on this issue. So, first of all, the Boeing attorneys say that the crash victims died immediately. It slammed into the ground. The company is making the case that they should not have to actually pay for damages for pain and suffering. And here's what Boeing is actually saying about it. They said um, the Illinois laws provide that evidence of passengers pre-impact pain and suffering may not be admitted to support a damages award in this case. If such evidence were admitted, it would unfairly be prejudicial and likely to confuse or mislead the jury. It should be excluded. Boeing recognizes the tremendous tragedy suffered by the families. Then on the other side, let me put this to you, uh, the plaintiff's attorney are saying that they actually should pay for that six minutes roller coaster that was tragic and led to the fatal crash and in the nosedive. And they say the people on the plane, quote, undeniably suffered horrific emotional distress, pain and suffering and physical impact and injury while they endured extreme G-forces, braced for impact, knew the airplane was malfunctioning and ultimately plummeted nose down to the ground at terrifying speed. It's difficult even to read the statements and thinking about what that must have been like for that six minute period. And again, it ended in absolute tragedy. But is the legal argument that Boeing is making somehow sound? You know, look, Laura, this is the kind of stuff that makes people hate lawyers. I'm dead serious here because it's, look, as a matter of common sense, people die in a plane crash, they ought to be compensated for it, right? Like it just, it it sort of defies logic. Well, Boeing may have a point here in that damages across the country are a matter of state law. And each of the 50 states is going to have a different scheme for how you compensate people who've been injured. And the argument Boeing is making is that, well, under Illinois state law, um, how someone might have suffered in the moments prior to death may not be compensable. Now, look, it's just even hard to say those words, given given the concept here. Now, look... uh, Suffering can be compensated. We had an entire debate through the through the early 2000s over whether people who were tortured um, actually suffered uh, in a way that they could be compensated. So the idea that the mere fact that we don't know if someone felt pain in the moments before death is sort of is silly and ludicrous. But this is going to be a legal fight. I think you're going to hear from a lot of psychologists saying careening to the ground near the speed of sound is itself such a profound uh, sense of suffering that people, of course, suffer damages on it uh, that they can be compensated for. And, we'll you know, to see. pain and suffering is so part of our lexicon when we think about, you know, cases. And yeah. I always argue that, it's, that baseball is not America's favorite pastime. It's litigation. <laughs> it really always has been. But Boeing has taken some actions. And part of the point that they're raising is here are some of the actions that they took following this tragic and deadly crash. They agreed to pay $500 million to victims, victims beneficiaries. They pledged $100 million to a fund for victims' families unrelated to the litigation. They also agreed to pay $200 million to resolve an SEC case related to alleged misleading statements after the crash. And they have issued a statement, of course, saying a spokesman for the company saying that they were deeply sorry to everyone who lost loved ones in the 737 MAX crash. They look forward to resolving their remaining cases. And they say, and I quote, We have acknowledged the terrible impact of these tragic accidents and made an upfront commitment to fully and fairly compensate every family who suffered a loss in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday. I mean, looking at this, you can't 
look at it in a vacuum. We have seen, um, you know, just yesterday, what there was the first time in many years, a conversation about flight safety. You've had a number of near misses and close calls here in the United States, even recently. Fortunately, the tragedy that happened there has not happened here in recent days. But politically speaking and thinking about how you view this overall, can you look at it in a vacuum or is this indicative of what our concerns are more broadly about the responsibility of a company to make good? Well, I would say two things. Number one, for the course of the past four years have not been good to Boeing from a public relations standpoint yeah. when it comes to uh, that the uh, those deaths and their handling of it, uh, their original uh, not being forthcoming about the facts. Like they're... Uh, the, the statement uh, makes it sound like uh, from the get-go, they've been trying to make everything right. There were a lot of problems uh, with that case. And so this added on top of that uh, creates, it's a public relations challenge and it's a tragedy for everyone who lost uh, family and loved ones on the crash. Uh, but more broadly to your point, yes, we've just come out of a series of very close calls and that's everything from what our air traffic controllers doing um, to what's happening with the planes in this case um, we all rely on a basic amount of trust in uh, the aircraft manufacturers, in the regulators, every time we get on a plane. Uh, now we're going to be moving into an era of self-driving vehicles. Like The more advanced technology gets, the more we trust the things that we cannot control ourselves. And I think Yeah, and this is a reminder that for so many big companies out there, what may have in decades past been a public relations nightmare that you want to resolve because you want people to feel safe flying on your plane so you can continue, say, selling them to airlines. Increasingly, companies don't just have to worry about what does the consumer think about my brand, but what does the government think about my brand? What do people in Washington think? And for a company like Boeing that is also makes a whole variety of types of aircraft that there are lots of purchasers of here in Washington, D.C. Your brand challenge as a company in any industry, but especially ones that have such close ties to the government, it's not just about do customers feel comfortable with my product. It is how likely is my negative brand going to make it that I get called in front of Congress to have a, a And those day. customers are not just here in the United States or the U.S. government. They are global. And Boeing is a considerable contributor to the U.S. economy. After these two airplane crashes, the 737 MAX were grounded. And this was their new airline. This is what they'd invested a lot of research R&D money into. And they... Um, it was the settlement that they gave to the SEC was because they'd effectively lied about the technology and the government grounded them. It put the United States on the back foot uh, globally with Airbus and France now selling to partners. Uh, this is only a recovery in the last two to three years for Boeing, where just yesterday they sold 80 uh, Dreamliners now to Saudi Arabia. So there are massive global implications to this to the tune of $10 billion for the U.S. economy. Such an important point, and no wonder there's this. I mean, people are thinking, why isn't this settled and resolved? Why maybe fight this issue? More to come on all this. Everyone, stay with me. We're coming right back because one music producer was actually so curious about artificial intelligence, he used it not only to write a song, but to emulate the voice of Eminem. We'll play that song for you next. CNN sitting down with world-renowned DJ and music producer David Guetta about this viral clip. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground.
Eminem, bro. Now, Geta used AI to not only emulate Eminem's voice, but also to write the lyrics. Here's Geta with CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich explaining this whole process. How'd this all happen? I just got curious about the AI. So I did write a verse in the style of Eminem. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. Then I put it in another AI website. I said, use rapper's voice, Eminem. You know, I did a few takes and finally I got something I liked. How long did that process take you? One hour. So, I'm just wondering if you're Eminem or any artist who goes to such extents, right, to make sure that the music you make is your own, how does this play out legally to you? Are you, are you calling your lawyers or are you saying, you know what, pretty good rendition? I mean, you know, game recognized game, and yes, it's a pretty good uh, <laughs> rendition. But no, look, I think we ought to embrace the technology generally because I think people are afraid of where AI is going. And think about every invention that people thought would displace workers. The steam engine, my goodness, well, it actually created probably tens of millions of jobs in the history of humanity, right? I think the thing we have to worry about is, uh, you know, legal responsibility. So what happens when AI urges someone to kill themselves or hurt themselves? What happens when uh, AI you know, in the context of sports, urges a, um, you know, provides directions on how to cheat uh, at the NCAA tournament or something like that. And these are all areas in which programmers or companies that own or, or put together uh, this, uh, these kinds of software, you know, might actually face responsibility, whether it's legal or moral or ethical. I mean, there's the idea of it goes from being, oh, that's pretty cool to, wait, what are the, what are the implications of all this and how is it being used? And of course, you think about copyright, think about intellectual property, think about who now owns that likeness of Eminem's own voice and who gets to decide how it's distributed on this point. What do you think? Eminem, um, David Guetta talks about this himself. He says, it was really fun and great, but also like there are ethical considerations. Like, it's not okay for me to sell that. It's not, I don't think it's okay. Where he said, I'm not sure it's against the law, but it probably should be. It's uh, wild, wild west now. At this that's point, it, right? He says he's for embracing experimentation now, but that he thinks that it will certainly need to be regulated for all of the reasons we've talked about. And, uh, you know, I just think as someone who uh, is immersed in uh, watching political coverage and watching how politicians behave, you look at this Congress, uh, state legislatures around the country, and um, we're talking about relatively low-tech elected officials who often don't even understand the basics of, like, social media, much less how AI works, um, and who are so polarized because of redistricting and primary elections and stuff that it's very hard to reach consensus on even non-technological issues that divide the country. And you think, are we ready for the explosion in really complicated issues that are about to happen in the realm of deep fakes, in the realm of what's going to happen to the news media, in the realm of how people trust information, and in the realm of what are politicians' roles in trying to regulate this. I think the short answer to that is probably no. No, we're not, we're not ready. on that. But also the idea of, you know, the Supreme Court's deciding issues on the Section you know, 230. They're trying to keep pace, talking about whether it's still applicable in many ways, how it can be revamped right now. You've got the pace of technology outpacing the ability to make laws, and then judges and courts how to actually interpret the law. But I want to play a little bit more what David Guetta had to say on this issue of copyright, because he actually does address it. Here he is. So technically, you created this song with the AI. Technically, you own the copyright. There's a a little bit of an ethical problem 
because when I'm using uh, Eminem's voice, I don't think there's a law right now about this. Do you think there needs to be federal regulation around artificial intelligence? I think maybe not yet. I, I, I like that it's very free and open right now. He's like, not the song I just made. Not for me, right? Not that one. Well, he has a good point, right? That when federal regulators get involved, and they will, there's a chance that they will create good laws that accurately draw lines that say, this is more like, you know, when a musical artist samples from another one and it's treated legally that way. Or this is more like an instrument and therefore you are able to create with it. But I actually wouldn't put my money on no, the regulators right. like doing things that make things clearer right, yeah. and easier and getting it right. And you know, so there's that's clear, a big problem. Sorry about that. Uh, but there's clear rules on parody, right? Like, so Weird Al has built an entire Weird Al Yankovic, an entire career. We know who Weird Al is. Well, you not every viewer might really? roll the so I'm okay, just saying, okay, okay, come okay, on. It's Weird Al. Well, okay, got, right. it, got it, got it. All right. But stipulating that everybody knows who Weird Al Yankovic is, but the point, Weird Al is. But the point is, he's built an entire career mimicking other artists or at least um, uh, making parodies of their songs. No one is confusing Weird Al's work for the originals, right. and he can get away with it legally. So what happens in this world where David Guetta's making it, it kind of sounds like Eminem, but you know it's not. What do you do it, with it? It also, the only time that regulations can actually help a creator is through the idea of being able to prosecute, file a lawsuit, all of that entails. And so in that the little guy, little you know, the younger creator is going to have a problem protecting themselves as opposed to the bigger studios, the industries that understand how to move the system. Right now, every single person is going back to figure out if beat it or eat it or what's the other what are the other you read all songs as well? Amish Paradise, Amish <laughs> Paradise, uh, the American God. Pie one that's about the Star Wars movie. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Well, clearly, we know Kristen Schultz Anderson a little bit more tonight on this point. I'm not, we're we're going to gonna end sure. it there for a moment. We just need to make sure we all get our AI, you know, our own AI copyrights now to our voices. Oh, before somebody and else does. your AI shoot. bracket. Oh, you know, that's a whole different. Because you know what? The bracket. Because the, the robots are going to get it. They're, they're going to get they're it. They're going to hit whatever that quintillion number is. By the way, it's right now on the issue of the brackets, <laughs> they actually predicted it and they have the final eight. Right so far. They got Princeton wrong so far, but Princetonians, the Tigers, we surprise you all anyway. Up next, everyone, invasive Burmese pythons on the move in Florida, spreading out of the Everglades. Excuse me. Wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin is here to explain what's going on next. Everyone, pythons, look at that picture. Pythons are on the move in Florida. Now, a review of python science, yes, of course, there is such a thing. It finds that the giant snakes are making their way north from the Everglades as far as West Palm Beach and Fort Myers. And did I mention they're hungry? Jeff Corwin, what is going on? Well, good evening, Laura, and it is a big deal. Giant pythons, this is like Jurassic Park, have invaded Florida. This is a problem that's been about four or five decades in the making, a little bit longer, and now it's literally reached the serpent boiling point. I mean, just seeing it and thinking about that, I have to tell you, I'm not normally afraid of things, but that is one thing in the area and the size we're talking about. First of all, how is the spreading so far? How is this huge span even practical here? Well, it probably began back in the 50s, but 
it was especially big during the 80s and in the 90s. And there's a theory behind Hurricane Andrew released a lot of snakes from captivity into the environment. But people probably have been negligently releasing their snakes. And southern Florida is very tropical. And it mirrors a lot of the native habitats like in Asia and Africa where Burmese pythons and, and African rock pythons are from. But the only difference is here they have an unlimited buffet because they have no natural predators. And with climate change, the species is spreading as Florida is warming. And I was just literally filming in Florida. I think you guys have the footage of that. Where you came we across actually, one. Yeah, so here I am. I'm at, at, at Turkey Point, which is a part of Florida Power and Light, which is a part of Nextera Energy. And essentially, this is an incredibly important wildlife sanctuary that is there to protect endangered American crocodiles. And this species, despite all the great science, there's my good buddy, Mike Lorette, expert uh, naturalist with Florida Power and Light. But these species are having a stranglehold on wildlife. I was just in the Everglades a couple of weeks ago. It is now eerily silent because small-bodied creatures like raccoons, opossum, even deer are being extirpated or eaten to death out of their native habitat because they have no defense against these pythons. I mean, so you're holding one, which, which by the way, I'm going to have a little bit of a nightmare about that, but you won't. <laughs> but the idea of thinking about this moment, oh, no, I, how I, big do these get? Yeah, I, you know, when I was a little kid, that was like, you know, in my bassinet with me. That rocked me to sleep every night. You know, I'm a okay. snake's... Snakes are my passion. I love snakes. But unfortunately, this really breaks my heart because now, Laura, there are likely millions upon millions of python invading southern Florida and basically essing their way north into middle parts of Florida. There was one recently captured that was pushing over 20 feet in length. This creature, like that you're looking right there, that we caught at Turkey Point, Florida Power Light, this amazing wildlife sanctuary dedicated to protecting endangered species. That could easily eat a raccoon and a wow. possum. And within a few more deers, uh, within a few more years, it could be swallowing a deer. It's a really big problem with really no clear solutions. So if there are no natural predators, they're in an area where they're thriving because it really mimics the areas that they actually would be native to. I mean, how do you solve this? Obviously, you're talking about raccoons and deer and the like. I mean, are they aggressive towards, has been the instance of humans as well? They must have to be, the problem has to be solved. This same species of snake that I'm holding right there in its native country of Southeast Asia, very big versions have swallowed um, a, a cows and even human beings have been swallowed by similar species of snakes. So yes, they are very aggressive and, and, and they're often using the waterway. So Florida is this natural water wonderland. So they'll use those rivulets of water to migrate into new habitat. So when animals are sleeping at night, they're totally vulnerable because that's when these creatures are on the prowl. But a snake like that could easily get upwards to 20 to 25 feet in length and probably eat upwards to 12 to 15 deer-sized animals every year. And as Florida gets warmer, 
They move more north. It's really the ultimate Jurassic Park survival of the fittest example of nature. It comes here with no native predators. Now, Florida Power and Light has over 70,000 of beautiful protected areas and habitat. Thankfully, they have people like Mike Lorette out there protecting this landscape, looking for predators. But it's a big problem. It is a snake invasion. There are certain phrases I don't want to hear next to Jurassic Park, and that's problem with snakes. I'll tell you that right now. But Jeff Corwin, thank you so much. And I hope the bassinet story was not accurate. I hope that was just hyperbole. Please, please. Okay. well, thank you, everyone, for watching. I'm going to have a different conversation with Jeff Corwin in a moment. Our coverage does continue. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.